0: or send an email to OpenLine at EWTN.com.
1: A tremendous Friday to each and every one of you. We've reached the end of another week. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. Colin Donovan is in the starting blocks, ready to run this race for the next 55 minutes or so. If you would like to talk to Colin with any of your theology questions, the number to call is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, that number is one two zero five two seven one two nine eight five, 271 2985 And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at one two zero five two seven one two nine eight five, 205 271 2985 And uh, we... Uh, Always welcome your emails as well. That email address is OpenLine at EWTN.com. I'm Jack Williams, Charles Beery producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Gubensky and Jeff Burson handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host as he is every Friday, the aforementioned Colin Donovan. How are you?
2: I'm doing good, Jack. Recovering as we all are from Phoenix, a great event.
1: Yeah, we came to you live from the desert last time, but now we're back in the uh, we, we are autumnal feeling, Birmingham, Alabama. It's glorious right now.
2: And, and I have to comment that, Jack, you and your team organized a wonderful EWTN radio conference in Phoenix that was just superb and a lot of fun to meet a lot of our affiliate people and, uh, and to do the broadcasting from there as we did.
1: Awesome. Thank you. I had a whole army of folks that helped mm-hmm. make that happen, and we're grateful for all of them. I've got an email here from Ryan, and he says In the New Testament, Jesus and the apostles are constantly casting out demons and performing exorcisms, but you hardly hear about that happening today. Does it still happen?
2: Uh, yes, it does. Certainly, in fact, uh, the church over the last 40 years or so, uh, maybe 50 or more even, uh, has noted an increase in the number of possessions which is where the the devil um, uh, not usually all the time but at some sometimes uh, takes control of the person and uh, subjugates their will so that he can manipulate their body and voice and and do other things with them uh, or infestations uh, or obsessions where uh, places are are, Uh, utilized by the demons, infested is the term there, or uh, people are attacked, and as the saints have been, both good and bad people. Uh, So that has certainly increased, and it's been many decades now that the church has encouraged uh, all bishops to have an exorcist on their staff. Uh, and, And so I think most probably today do, or a priest A pious priest familiar with the ritual, familiar with the mystical theology that's uh, behind these kinds of events, uh, who is therefore both knowledgeable and and devout uh, to uh, exercise Christ's authority through the ministry of the church uh, over the demons and to expel them. Now, on the general question, uh, I knew a priest uh, many decades ago now who had done a study into this history, and it was his conclusion that uh, in the early years, when occult activity in the early centuries, when occult activity in the world, you had the, you had the priesthoods, uh, the pagan priesthood, some of which were implicitly uh, occult, and others were just, you know, human beings stupidly worshiping, you know, objects instead of God. But in those cases of the demonic, that was certainly wide, very widespread, and so. He saw that over the course of time, this aspect of the church's life actually diminished, and you began to see not only exorcisms and healings and other charismatic gifts, for example, be more institutionalized in the church in the sense that holy people had them. So you see them in the, in the, in the doings of the saints. So you see the power of miracles, the power of, of commanding the spirits, uh, and these other spiritual phenomena. For example, perhaps in the greatest example of that, Padre Pio. But there have been many others uh, down through history. But he also saw that as our times become more like those early centuries there is therefore more demonic activity, and the church's response to it is according. So we've come basically full circle since ancient Roman times, and so we're seeing, we're seeing both the activity of the devil and the activity of the church against it through exorcism, through deliverance, prayer, and teams, and so on, and these kinds of activities in the church. And it, I think it, it's, a, it's a statement, it's a sign of the times that we should take note of that in many ways we are reverting to that pagan world that existed. And some have said the pagan gods are returning, and there's a lot of truth to, uh, to that statement, I think.
1: And for anyone who may be fearing uh, falling victim to uh, such a situation, um, the evil one does not have free reign to uh, engage in these activities. Uh, he really, on some level has to be given a doorway in, doesn't he?
2: He, he does, and i I've, uh, the material that I've seen from exorcists and those who work on their teams, they speak of giving them authority. So we know in, the, say, the book of Job, that that would be more of oppression of Job. We see how uh, he sought authority for the testing of Job, and this is probably what is done in the cases of the saints. In other cases where people uh, go into and start beginning occult practices, this is basically giving him the authority. He can't, uh, he can't uh, come in through a door unless we open it. So there are many spiritual arguments, theological arguments, against ever opening that door to the occult world through divination, through astrology, through New Age practices. Uh, Reiki would be one, um, and you go on down the list. This is implicitly a way of saying, you know, I'm interested in this world, and of course, he's prepared to be interested in you, and we don't want to open that door. So you keep up prayer, you keep up the sacraments, and you avoid those things. And uh, if you become holy enough to be tortured as John Vianney was, well, that's a different matter. This only increases your glory rather than uh, destroys you and brings you into the kingdom of the evil one.
1: 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America, 833-288-3986. Jacinda would like to know, does God have one mind and one consciousness, or does he have three?
2: (laughs) Well, in a way, Christ is the mind of God and the Spirit is the will of God. This is about as close as we can uh, get. Uh, It follows the language of Scripture. Uh, Augustine made an analysis regarding the persons of the Trinity, but the, the 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 divine nature is one. It's simple. It's not complex. And that that way, when it pours itself out in the act of knowing, that's Christ. It's a one only and eternal pouring out that is constantly going on from our point of view. And uh, within the God, this what's called this uh, walking around among, uh, there there is a, a continual going on of processing among the persons of the Trinity, the Father to the Son, the Holy Spirit, and so on. So we can't understand the mystery, but the word, the second person, is the act— and the Holy Spirit, the act of knowledge, and the Holy Spirit, the act of love, and that's about as close as Augustine or any of any of our theologians have gotten to explaining this mystery. But in and of itself, the unity of the of the Trinity of the Godhead precludes an independent consciousness, as it were, in the way that we think of it as human beings that degree of individuality is not what the personhood uh, of the persons of the trinity is is like we're
1: just getting started on a friday edition of ewtn's open line 833 288 ewtn is our toll free number it's a free phone call anywhere in north america In just a moment, we'll talk to Michael in Silver Spring, Maryland. And we've got plenty of time for your phone calls as well. The number again, 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, we'd still love to hear from you. That number is 1-205-271-2985. And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at one 271 2985 And you can always uh, reach us via email. That email address is openline at ewtn.com. That's openline, all one word, at ewtn.com. It's EWTN's Open Line Friday Talking Theology with our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan.
0: This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com.
1: You know, we've got a great new book hot off the presses from EWTN Publishing, and this is one you're going to want to pick up. Catechism of the Spiritual Life, A Journey into the Sacred Mysteries by Robert Cardinal Sarah, one of the great prelates uh, on the African continent. And he invites you to journey with him through the Gospels and discover the origin and meaning of each of the sacraments and how each one is essential to helping you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus, foster your contemplative life, and flourish in communion with the Holy Spirit. Uh, you'll find uh, you'll learn about the power of the Holy Spirit at work through the sacraments of the church, why laws prohibiting our freedom of worship are more deadly than any virus, and much, much more. The Catechism of the Spiritual Life, A Journey into the Sacred Mysteries by Cardinal uh, Robert Cardinal Sarrah. It's available now at EWTN's religious catalog. That's EWTNRC.com by Catholic shop EWTNRC dot Com. have you had a chance to read that one, Colin? Was that was that on your pile of uh, books to approve?
2: No, it uh, it wasn't. Uh, but um, I think we have uh, someone else at the network who who does that works more intimately with EWTN uh, publishing.
1: Yeah, so that's a that's a good one by a trusted source in uh, Cardinal Seurat. As advertised, we head to the phones now. Michael is first up in Silver Spring, Maryland, checking out the open line podcast today. Michael, you're on with Colin Donovan.
3: Good afternoon, Mr. Williams, Mr. Donovan. My question is about the term ecclesia suplet." My understanding is that, or my previous understanding was that, was a primarily a juridical thing. If jurisdiction was lacking somewhere, it was within the power of the church to <clears throat> grant, to retroactively grant jurisdiction when there was some confusion or a mistake. I understand, there's some formal definitions in the canons about this. I recently had someone claim that uh, there was more to ecclesia suplet" as in. Yeah. Something about this could be granted um, or applied to grace, not just jurisdiction, the, the jurisdiction, but there could be grace applied by the church uh, outside of the context of a, of a sacrament. Is there uh, a background? He, he didn't really provide any sources for this. Is there some sort of background to this, or is there some understanding in the church outside of what it's uh, the canonical jur- jurisdictional one?
2: Uh, I, I think somebody has termed a canonical term into sort of a generalized term for the fact that God is not limited. Uh, God is not limited to who he gives grace to. So the, the good thief, uh, obviously, outside the sacraments and so on. Uh, but no, in and of itself, Ecclesiastes' suplet applies to a fact, a fact of the uh, absence of jurisdiction, uh, rather an error about that fact. So a priest, for example, believes that his faculties were renewed, Uh, a penitent goes to him, Uh, he hears his confession, hears the confession of the penitent, uh, believing that he has the jurisdiction. He certainly has the power, but jurisdiction is needed. There's a case where his heir, ecclesia suplet, it's not the church's mind that, you know, tut, 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 you made a mistake, this person is deprived of absolution, not at all the case. Ecclesia suplet does not mean uh, supplying for something essential. So, for example, if uh, the matter or the, uh, or the form is missing in the celebration of a sacrament, it can't supply for, for some, the something essential like that. Uh, You know, let's say that, you know, somebody dresses as a priest or maybe even believes that they have a valid ordination because they were, you know, maybe ordained in some context where they thought they were ordained, and so they celebrate the Mass and the people innocently go to Mass thinking they're getting the Eucharist. Ecclesia suplet doesn't replace the essential elements of having to have orders and have the proper matter and form. So it's a very narrow thing. It's usually about a factual thing. The person believes the priest has jurisdiction. The priest believes his jurisdiction. And so it fits in other circumstances where where that kind of error would take place. Outside of the sacraments, we know what God has uh, ordained, positively ordained. The sacraments as instruments of grace. He is free to grant them otherwise. And many popes have spoken on this, that He's not limited. Um, I recite this quite frequently, but Pope Blessed Pope Pius the Ninth, the Pope of the First Vatican Council, speaks explicitly with this about those outside the Church who have good intentions, are seeking the truth, and uh, responding to the light of truth and the, offer, and the actual graces that God gives them to move them in the direction. That God by no means punishes them with hell because of their you know, the moral impossibility of them discovering the gospel or the church. But we leave those matters to God. You know, he is, he is the one that determines when he will give grace outside of the sacraments, as Christ did on the cross. We can't know that. We can only know what Christ told us, unless you be baptized, unless you eat the body and drink the, my blood. We know those, those statements. Those are obligations to us. Those are obligations to those who who know that they have that obligation. Where there's moral impossibility or physical impossibility, those are situations where God will determine whether to give the grace or not. And that is not at all ecclesia suplet. Maybe in some sense that all grace is coming through Christ and come through the church, but I've never heard that term applied to those kinds of extra-sacramental situations, even though the church may be the instrument uh, directly or indirectly of of that individual's uh, uh, being given grace.
1: 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. A couple of open lines and plenty of time for your calls at 833 288 three nine eight six to the commonwealth of massachusetts we go daniel is a first time caller listening on the station of the cross daniel you're on with colin donovan
3: hello guys um a long time listener first time caller mm-hmm. um i got a lot of things going through my head and people are talking do you have to be so-called born again to When you die, either go to heaven, see Jesus, see God. You have to be born again. And if you do, how do you know you are born again?
2: Okay. Well, I I somewhat answered that in the last question as well. Christ established a method by which the graces of the redemption are distributed. He said to the apostles whose sins you forgive, they shall be forgiven. He said to his audience, as John records in chapters 3 and 6, the necessity of baptism and the necessity of the Eucharist. Now, that necessity is something that those who believe that Christ said that and meant it, obviously, if their consciences believe that, they have an obligation to follow it. We can't know what God does outside of that. We do know that Christ established the apostles. He said he would be with them to the end of the the age. They are all dead. Who are those apostles today? Well, Paul appointed Timothy and Titus as bishops. We know there is a history of bishops in the first century, in the second century. We have Irenaeus saying in the middle of the second century that you know where the church is because those bishops who trace their pedigree, as it were, to the apostles— this is where the apostolic authority that Christ left the church is to be found, with those who have their uh, the episcopal pedi- pedigree, their overseer pedigree, if you want to take one of the common translations of episcopoi. That pedigree goes back to the apostles, showing that they have a received authority. They are not the origins of the authority. They are not the owners of the authority. They're not the owners of the teaching. They're not the owners of the sacraments. They're not the owners of their brother priests but and bishops. They're, but together, in the communion of the church, they share that mission that Christ himself had, and they continue it down through time and all down through the places. That's what the role of the Catholic Church is, to be that continuing mystical body of Christ, visibly present in the world, working. And so when you say to be born again, it has a meaning. It has a meaning which the tradition, the tradition of the apostles, the fathers, the church, down through the centuries, being born again is unless you are born again of water and the Holy Spirit. Or as, uh, as uh, Peter said on Pentecost, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of the sins. So it's not a mystical act, it's a sacramental act, which Christ established in the church. So we know that baptism is the door to the graces of the redemption the grace of the Eucharist, the grace of reconciliation or confession, the grace of the anointing of the sick, the grace of sacramental matrimony, the grace of holy orders and the priesthood the diaconate and the episcopacy. We know that the church, the baptism, is the door to all of those things. We know this because the scripture and history attest to it. What God does outside of that, as I told the previous caller, we cannot know, but we know he is merciful on the one hand, and he is just on the other. And he will weigh the consciences of individuals, and he will give graces as he pleases, and he will accept, the give justice as he pleases. Um, we know he gave justice to Abraham. He was, he was attributed, righteousness was attributed to him. St. Thomas Aquinas says that all of those graces of justice given to the patriarchs and the Israelites before were in view of Christ. They didn't know of Christ, they didn't have the name of Christ, but they were justified by the same redemption that justifies us. So looking forward, whereas we look back to Christ. But it's the same justification. So we leave to God those who are not in the church. So the answer of your question is born again. You know it because you go into the church or you bring your baby to the church and the child is baptized or you are baptized. You are now born again. You receive the grace of God. You receive the other graces which the church ascribes to baptism, uh, the infused virtues, uh, the three theological and the four cardinal virtues, uh, sanctifying grace, all of these things you get at baptism. That's the born again. And therefore, religion does matter because religion means an organized system or idea that has a basis either in revelation as Judaism does and as Christianity does or in a philosophy as Buddhism does. That's that's a religion. So the religion of Christ is an organized religion. It's the religion through which Christ continues his ministry in the world and it certainly does matter. So I, I think it seems like a complex answer, but it's really quite simple. Where in the world is the ministry of Christ himself, the person Jesus Christ, Son of God, where is that going on? And how is it going on? It's going on the way it did a thousand years ago, and it's going on the way it did a thousand years before that. That's where we get the confidence we are born again. Now, we're then obliged to persevere in the grace has God put in, given us to continue you know, keeping our baptismal garment pure, as it were, that grace of justice God gives us, to the end of our life. That's where most of our problems, frankly, come in in life, is we find that very difficult because of our weak human nature. But we we try and we trust in the Lord because all power is His. It's
1: EWTN's Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan.
0: This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network.
1: I want to give a big shout out to our longtime EWTN radio partner, Catholic Radio in South Carolina. This week they're celebrating their 18th anniversary on the air. They're now heard on four signals throughout South Carolina in Greenville, Spartanburg, Greer, and Charleston. And in Hilton Head, congratulations to Mike Brennan and his whole team at Catholic Radio of South Carolina celebrating 18 years of broadcasting the fullness of the truth. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. Next up is Michael, another first-time caller. He is calling us from the province of Saskatchewan in uh, beautiful Canada to our north listening on Rio Presence Radio. Michael, thanks for holding. Welcome to the program.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: And Michael, I'm, I don't know if you're aware, but Colin Donovan, our host today, is a native of Saskatchewan.
2: <laughs> you didn't know how to say that, did you? <laughs> no,
4: this is my first time call, first time listen. I've never actually listened to the show. Yeah.
2: I well, find it where, where are you, Michael, in Saskatchewan?
4: Uh, just just north of Estevan, Stoughton area, uh, two hours east of Regina.
2: Okay. Well, I know that 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 road to to Winnipeg. Yeah. That, yeah. Nice yeah, yeah. yeah. Know, know it well. I lived in Regina for a while and grew up in, mostly in Saskatoon until we moved away. So.
4: Okay, yeah. Lovely people out here.
2: Yeah. Anyway, what's your question, buddy?
4: I had to uh, comment, maybe a question. I, okay. I'm a long time, I, I've studied uh, martial arts, um, mm-hmm. Reiki, uh, massage therapist by trade, cranial sacralist. Uh, I do a lot of drum circles and stuff, and I just, uh, I I just, I had, there was a comment on there I was just wondering about, Mm because I I know there's a lot of uh, kind of witchcraft talk about uh, Reiki and energy work and stuff like that. I'm just, why is, why are these people kind of, mm, I wouldn't maybe demonize or in that Catholic kind of way? Because I was born and raised Catholic. Sure. So.
2: No, and that, and that's a good question. Um, you know, nobody, nobody is judging their fate, certainly. But what the church does is it lays down markers uh, based on the first commandment. You shall have, you know, one only, you know, no other God except God. And so based on that, it rules out activities where, for example, if you look at the New Age and the use of crystals and a lot of these things from the church's point of view, uh, and I think even from the scientific point of view, it would be certainly argued, um, the point of view is there are no impersonal powers, you know, in the world. You have the laws of nature we know about. We know about, uh, you know, radio waves, and we know about microwaves, and we know about light as a wave. We know all of these things about in physical science. But once you cross over into the idea that you can, so for instance, in Reiki, uh, where there there's a certain uh, East Asia, Asian philosophy of worldview there, which talks about you know, these energies that can be manipulated and so on. You see it, you see it in, uh, in yoga and the manipulations of the chakra and you, the things that you try to accomplish and a way to get the energy aligned in a certain way. You see it in Reiki where you use your hands and you're sort of uh, doing uh, healing. Uh, You could distinguish that from merely healing touch, that warmth of human touch and contact and the interest that someone shows in you. But once you start saying that there are impersonal powers that that are, are being appealed to and that you have control over them, this for the church is a marker of an area of danger. Uh, it doesn't make judgments about the innocent, the moral innocence of the person or who does who does it, thinking, "Oh, here I found something really useful. Oh, and it seems to work. That's great. I'm going to do you continue doing this." The church is not making that judgment. The church is making it out of the revealed worldview of both Judaism and Christianity, and the specific particular theology of the Catholic Church, obviously, that if God is not the power behind something. Uh, then there are other forces. In other words, there are the forces of the fallen angels. So this is the concern there. And we were t- the, what you heard was in the context of the individual giving up a certain degree of personal authority or thinking they're taking authority over, per- over, over impersonal powers. The church would say there is no such thing as an impersonal power. And furthermore, if it's in, a, if it's a personal power, you certainly are not taking authority over it, but it is glad to deceive you so that it can take authority over you. So it's out of the re- revealed world, uh, revealed view of Catholicism of Christianity, that the Church is looking out for the good of her children and discourages any kind of practice which suggests an opening to the the world of the fallen angels in areas such as this where power and energies are entirely equivocal. It's not like radio waves. You don't have a detector for this. You're making a claim about something that is completely unseen but seems to have an effect. Where is that effect coming from is what the church would ask. If it's not coming from God and God doesn't work that way, it's coming from somewhere else, so that's the warning which the church issues. Now, people make their free free decisions to involve themselves in it, and I think there are, there are even Catholics who have done this. I've known some, you know, they continue to frequent the sacraments, they pray, they think they're doing, you know, they're doing all right, but the risk is that it will, you know, gradually, 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 this will become the all-consuming interest, and the and the faith and the religious practice will become secondary. Uh, And that's obviously what the devil's purpose is. So it's not, it's like anything like that. Nobody says, hey, I'm going to go get the help of this guy with the horns, or he's depicted in pictures with the horns and the fiery tail, and we're going to go, you know, there may be some Satanists who do that. But that's not what people, they're looking for something of benefit to other human beings. They have a good intention and good purpose. They're just being incautious and imprudent, and that's why the church warns on subjects like that.
1: God bless you, Michael. We hope to hear from you again in the future. Next up is Christopher, another first-time caller in Amsterdam, New York, listening at Pox at Bonham Radio. Christopher, thanks for holding. your arm on with Colin Donovan.
4: Oh.
1: Hi, Christopher. Go ahead.
4: I was wondering, like, I took my girlfriend to church a few times, and she wanted to receive the Eucharist. And, you know, the priest says, Jesus says, take this, all of you, and eat of it. Now, he doesn't say, take this, all you Catholics. So I was wondering if she could receive the Eucharist before she becomes a Catholic, which we're going to get her. She wants to become one, but mm-hmm. until then, like, cause yeah. she wants to participate in receiving the Eucharist.
2: Okay, so Jesus said to the apostles, whose sins you shall forgive, they are forgiven. Does that mean that I can forgive sins? I'm, you know, it's the same context who was present is the apostles present and and the others who accompanied him who were his faithful disciples, presumably even his mother. And he said to these disciples, take this all of you and eat it for this is my body, which will be given up for you. So what's all assumed in that statement is his disciples and that they see the need that they have for receiving his body and blood, as he had taught elsewhere, you know, in the Gospel of John, as we mentioned earlier. So this is why the church doesn't have an open Eucharist, as some uh, non-Catholic uh, churches with uh, Eucharistic services do, but rather that the individual has been uh, come into the church through that door of baptism I talked about in the last segment. They've come into the church, which is also the door to all the other sacraments, and having done that, they are and having professed their faith in all that the Church believes, including the, the complete meaning of receiving the Holy Eucharist, that the Mass is a sacrifice, wow. that the communion is our personal union with our Lord, and even that he remains present uh, after the Mass to be adored, uh, a God that he is. When all of that is professed publicly before the Church through being received into the Church— which can be two ways. If she's not baptized, then she would be baptized, confirmed, and receive the Eucharist at that occasion. If she's already a baptized Christian, then she would be confirmed and receive the Eucharist at that occasion. So she should look forward with great adoration the being able to receive our Jesus for the first time as a Catholic and not try to preempt that, and she won't uh, she won't regret having that patience and the lord will bless that patience
1: 833 288 ewtn is our toll free number it's a free telephone call anywhere in north america still time for your calls at 833 833- 288-3986. Be sure to join us for Catholic Answers Live tonight, 6 p.m. Eastern. In hour number one, Rose Sweet joins Side Keller to answer your questions. And one of the most popular hours of the month in hour number two, it's Weird Questions with Jimmy Akin. That's hour number two on Catholic Answers Live tonight, 6 p.m. Eastern time, right here on EWTN Radio. Uh, Ronald would like to know what was the point of Pentecost if the Holy Spirit was already here.
2: Well, if you if you look at what happened, it's the manifestation of the presence of the Holy Spirit. To the apostles, uh, it came in a physical form that they could. I think I'm you know speculating why and hermeneutizing the the text of the scripture they needed something they needed themselves they would been told to wait for the coming of the holy spirit this told them the holy spirit was coming upon them and then they felt that and of course others had the phenomena that they saw so there was that public witness element you know i think since then probably billions of people have been confirmed which is the sacramental you know uh, analogy to pentecost And little flames of fire haven't danced on their head and and so on and so forth. But for that first body of the witnesses of the apostles that this attracted people to where they were, generally considered to be the upper room where the Last Supper was celebrated, and then when they went out, filled with new zeal now because the Holy Spirit had had completely come into them, as it were, confirmed them in their in their faith and when they'd have been cowering and now they're confirmed and they come out. And now with zeal they preach the gospel, the basic apostolic charisma. And they say what I mentioned earlier in the show, you know, they told the story of Christ and they said, and people said, What do we do? Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of the sins. And that is the basic thing that we are all called to do, and so we don't—we're not going to see the external phenomena that the apostles saw, which had a purpose on that instance to set them apart uh, from the rest of the, the disciples, even for that matter. Uh, but it was certainly the 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 kicking off of the church's apostolic zeal, which has not abated uh, since that uh, Pentecost Sunday back in the year 30 or 33-year, whichever uh, historians finally conclude that this all occurred in.
1: eight three three two eight eight. ewtn is our toll-free number. Still time to take your phone call at 833-288-3986. Uh, Gina asks the question, Are there biblical references that justify praying to angels?
2: Well, there's certainly the example of Abraham talking to the three angels uh, who were representing mysteriously the three persons of the Trinity, I think, even though he did not see that that wasn't an obvious thing to him. But looking back, we could say that. So he he spoke to angels. Um, Angels were no less the spirits uh, before they came down to earth. And when they went back, uh, you know, before the face of the Father, which they actually never really left, uh, so, we do the same thing, and we see in the book of Revelation, for example, in chapters 4 and 8, two cases, the human case of the 24 elders representing the uh, the elders of the old law, the patriarchs, and the elders of the new law, the apostles, and showing how uh, their role in mediating the prayers of the people, representing the, the incense rising up to God. Uh, so these are some of the examples. But it also follows from the church's conception of what it is. It's it's a communion, and it's not just a communion of those of the just and of the faithful, walking around on earth. But it's also communion with those who have gone before us, and a communion of those who are in the state of being purified uh, of any dross of sin before they enter into heaven. And so that that communion is that's what the whole church is heavenly in the place of suffering in purgatory and here on earth and in that communion we are all alive to each other it's not that there the saints are more alive than we are or we are more alive than they are in god we are all alive and jesus even said that because when he refuted the pharisees he said that abraham came, came saw my coming and he rejoiced and they said you're not old enough to have seen abraham in god he responds paraphrasing all are alive. And so in God, and through God's power, not through our own or theirs, in God, we can pray to the saints and angels. Um, And it's only because it's in God. The other side of the coin is we may not and should not appeal to the other people, (laughs) the -hmm. ones who are not in God, because we're doing it in God. And if we're not doing it in God, we're, we're running risks and dangers.
1: Uh, Next up is Jack, another first-time caller in Brownsburg, Indiana, listening on Catholic Radio Indy. Jack, you're on with Colin Donovan.
4: Hi there. I just wanted to ask, um, if we receive salvation at baptism, um, why do we need to go to confession?
2: Okay. We receive justice at baptism, but we know that that's not the end of the story because I would be probably at a loss to find even among the saints. We know some saints, their confessors said, I think of St. Therese of Lisieux, whose feast day we just celebrated, that in his estimation, she never committed a a deliberate uh, mortal sin. Mortal sin breaks our bond with God, but other people do. How do we get back from that? Well, we turn to God. Do we turn to God directly or do has God instrumentalized it through the ministry of the church? And that's the answer. So we're following, we're, we're doing what Christ says. Now, the the church even makes distinctions on this point to show clearly what is being done because it takes that you know, passage from Easter night when Jesus said to the apostles, whose sins you shall forgive they are forgiven, whose sins you shall forgive, uh, uh, retain; they are retained, there's a decision. A decision implies their apostles' knowledge of the sin of the person, more importantly, their willingness to repent or whether they're insincere. So the priest, in, as the apostles would have done, looked for contrition. All of that implies that we, there's, our part of that is to tell them what they need to know to decide whether we're contrite or not, whether our confession is sincere. So all of that is packed into it. But over and above that, there is this extra sacramental part that we've sort of touched on in other calls today, and that is, that doesn't mean that only through the priest that God can deliver us from our, our mortal sins, from those grave sins which offend him gravely. And so the Church says that the person whose contrition is true and authentic can, even outside of the sacraments, be forgiven. And that would apply to Catholics. That would apply to non-Catholics. But the basic thing is, frankly, that we are such a creature that sometimes we ourselves are not even sure whether we're seeking forgiveness, whether it's from our family members or others or even God, because there's a lot of downside to not doing it or because we're truly sorry. That's the difference between uh, imperfect contrition and perfect. Imperfect has a lot of our self-will in it and our self-concern. Oh, I might go to hell. Oh, if I don't do it, you know, what will people think of me? You know, there's all kinds of ego wrapped up in that. Whereas perfect contrition has God in view in the offense of our sin to God. That will justify outside of the sacraments. But what, for Catholics, distinguishes that from non-Catholics is that in the sacrament of penance, grace raises even the imperfect contrition, so that even if you bring all that ego and you're sorry insofar as you would not do it again if you could resist doing it again, maybe not because you're totally in love with God, but, you know— You're pointing in the right direction. You want to do the right thing. The sacrament will will raise that up, and the absolution will be will be clearly valid and accomplish it. Short of that, if we're uncertain about whether we're sincere when we seek God's forgiveness, say as a non-Catholic or a Catholic at the end of life who doesn't have who has sins to forgive, and there's no priest around, or they're out in the boonies, in Father's five, you know. 5 hours away we were just talking about Saskatchewan there are places in there that might be considerable distances from you know from a parish so what do you do in that situation you make a perfect act of contrition but if you don't whether you're a catholic or protestant there is no justice to raise you up from mortal sin so it goes back to everything having been committed to the hands of the church instrumentalized if you will so that the church becomes the instrument of Christ. It becomes his eyes, his hands, his, his ears in the world. And her ministers accomplish the works that he himself did. And that is why when he says, whose sins you shall forgive, they are forgiven, we take that as a command to us to bring our sins to the successors of the apostles and those who assist them in carrying out their ministry, the priest. So that's called a precept of Christ, and that's where our obligation of confession comes from, even though theologically justice can be restored outside of confession with perfect contrition.
1: I love rubber meets the road questions, Colin, and Julia has one of those. She's a first-time caller in Middleton, Ohio, listening on Sacred Heart Radio. Julia, you're on with Colin Donovan.
5: Okay. I was sitting in the back pew of at Mass, and uh, a father and two young people come in and sit down next to me late. They were a half hour late, so evidently they, they didn't, weren't regular parishioners, didn't know what time Mass was. Uh, communion time, uh, the father went ahead. The young people were sitting at the end of the pew that would go first. Well, the father went ahead of the two young people. The father, The young people followed them. Uh, to receive communion from a lay minister. Um, the when I got back to my pew, the lady and a friend of mine who was sitting in front of me was turned around and she was telling this young girl, "You have to consume the host. You have to consume it." And the girl said, "Why? You know she's holding it up. Why?" and uh, uh, the father sitting there. What do I do? You know, and what do you do?
2: Mm-hmm. Well, had the father consumed it? No, the was, other child, he
5: didn't. the child who was not Catholic, probably consumed it. Well, should the lady who turned around asked for it?
2: Mm-hmm.
5: Uh, uh, should she have taken sure. it and consumed
2: it, or should I, I, I have asked? Yes, I, I, I believe in that situation, to ensure that it was not carried away, you would have been justified in saying, if you are not Catholic and don't intend to consume that, would you would you please give it to me because this is the discipline of the Catholic Church. Uh, you can't leave the Church with uh, uh, the Eucharist and just carry it like that, or some some way of explaining it. So you would have been justified by what's called the law of necessity to, re- to take that and to receive it in order to protect the Eucharistic species. So, uh, however that could have been done, you know, sometimes if there's an usher, you can easily engage their help as well. Uh, that would have been a possibility. Uh, so, uh, you know, you may not encounter that. You might inform the pastor so that if he sees these individuals come in again, you um, uh, he may not remember them who or whoever was celebrating. At least he's aware that they are not Catholics. And then, um, and then it would be his responsibility to try to gently, diplomatically, of course, discourage them receiving and, and even not refusing to give it to him would be also appropriate in that case.
1: And Colin, just about 90 seconds left here, but Jim would like to know, why do Roman Catholics hold Thomas Aquinas in such esteem when he advocated that heretics be executed?
2: <laughs> well, he's a man of our time, as uh, as are we, you know, so uh, what he took to be part of the law of nations or the natural law and justified, um, this was the common practice then. I think uh, we've moved beyond that, and uh, it, it it tended to be a futile exercise. What Aquinas is admired for is the complete the consistency of his synthesis of philosophy, theology, scriptures, and the fathers of the church. If you look in the Summa and his other writings, uh, some of which are more philosophical and not so scripture and revelation-based, but philosophically looking at questions. But if you look at the the ones which are scripture-based, he usually lights, he may recite or point to philosophy as an explanation, the fathers of the church, the theological uh, understandings and provide us very synthetic answer. That's why that's why the popes have almost universally since his day considered him the greatest of the theologians uh, in church history, and I would say that that's still uh, the case today.
1: On behalf of our host Colin Donovan, our producer Charles Beery, call screener Matt Kubensky, and our social media Maven Mr. Jeff Burson, I'm Jack Williams. Thanks for another great week of EWTN's Open Line. We'll kick it all off next week on Monday with Father John Tregilio. Until we get together then, have a great weekend and God bless.